to finish this book next Sunday. We'll deal with chapter 13 next Sunday. Today we're dealing with uh, a large, large section of chapter 12, and, uh, and we're going to finish this book, which is, I was reading or looking through all my files this morning. I think this is message number 18, which means next week will be message number 19, and I uh, thought about, well, we might as well just try to get another one in there, make it around a, a 20, but we're not going to do that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to stop at number 19 and uh, move on from there. In August, my plan is to uh, spend four Sundays looking at hospitality. What does the Bible have to say about us as his people being hospitable to those who are not of the church, not of the people of God? And so we're going to talk about what it means to be a welcoming Christian as well as a welcoming church uh, in the month of August. And so a lot of that... A lot of reasoning behind that is just for us to think more intentionally, more strategically about our own personal lives, how we can be open to, to all people and to be very gospel-centered in the way we live, the way we operate as a family, the way we live in our neighborhoods, but also how we can be and should be more welcoming as a church. You know, the tendency for us is to get comfortable with what we're used to. And so I know if you're here in church because you sit in the same spot every Sunday. So if you move spots, which some of you do from time to time, it messes with my mind. Because I, I, I'm used to looking around, I know that people are going to sit in certain spots, and so I can kind of keep an eye on whether or not you've been attending church because I see you or don't see you in church. And so, uh, no, I'm kidding, I don't. I keep tabs on it, but it's not like I'm sending uh, uh, secret agents to your house to, to see where you're at. But, uh, you know, I, I keep a running tally in my head of, of kind of what your attendance is, and it's always a good thing for that. But uh, with that, we have a tendency to think that that seat you sit in is your seat. Now, I'm grateful none of you bring cushions and a name tag and put it there, but if someone were to come in as a guest, sit in your seat, how would you respond to that? And so we're going to kind of tackle some of those issues. and. <laughs> Uh, maybe you'll feel convicted in this area. I don't know, but uh, we always need to strive to be a more welcoming church. Now, I will say this. Uh, when I visit and talk with guests, people who have been attending even for a while and seeking membership, like I had a, a conversation in, uh, in, a, in a family's home this past week, and, and most of the time, 99.9% of the time, what I hear as feedback is, this is a warm welcoming, loving church. They love how we love to talk with one another, converse with one another. All of the things in those uh, areas are good and healthy, but at the same time, we always have room to improve. And so we're just going to talk about what it means to be a welcoming church because we want to be a church that welcomes with open arms our community, our neighbors, as well as the nations uh, to Christ. And so we're going to talk about that in the month of August. This morning we're going to be here in, in Nehemiah chapter 12 where we're going to talk about um, the dedication of this wall and was, what was taking place here in, uh, in this chapter at this point in the history of, of Judah, of Israel. But this morning, as I mentioned earlier, Nick and um, our students and some leaders are in New York City. They woke up this morning in New York City. It's much different than, than waking up in Powhatan. I mean, think about it. They're in the Big Apple this week. They're working with World Changers. They're working with the church plant. What World Changers is, is this part of our uh, Southern Baptist Convention where churches send mission teams. And typically it works in, in, in construction, going into underprivileged areas. And so maybe putting on a roof or uh, building on a deck or something that's going to minister to people who have low income. And so they use that as an avenue 
for the gospel. What our folks are doing in New York City is they're not necessarily doing that. They're working with a church plan. And so their service will look a little bit different than typical with world changers. But they're there in the Big Apple to serve the people. It's actually an international church plant. And so it's really neat um, that they're there. But as I was taking them to the train station yesterday morning, I mean, the, it was, we met here at 5 o'clock in the morning, got on the road to, to get out to Staples Mills to get the train by 6.30 when it was leaving, and as I was driving them over there in the van, I was watch, or listening to their conversation. And uh, most of these teenagers had never been to the Big Apple. I've never been to the Big Apple unless you consider flying in and out of JFK uh, being part of the city. I don't consider it that. I've only seen it from the air. And so they're talking about what it's going to be like to be in New York City. Many of you have been there, and uh, many of you have not been there, but you've seen it on TV. All of us know this, though. New York City is much different than Powhatan. Can I get an amen? It's different than Powhatan. I mean, uh, New York City is known as the city that never sleeps, but yesterday morning at 5 a.m., I think we were the only ones up and awake and moving in Powhatan because the roads were empty. And so it's much different in the city than it is here in, in our area. I say that to kind of set the stage for what we're seeing here in the life of Nehemiah and what's taking place in the text Nehemiah, as we know, had been the cupbearer to the Persian emperor, Artaxerxes. Persia was the leading empire in this time of history. In 5th century BC, they were the empire of the world. So not only was the palace in Susa luxurious, as we talked about there in chapters 1 and 2, but everything that mattered in the world at that point in history was happening in Susa, was happening in the, in the uh, empire of the Persians. And so... Everything was bustling with activity in the city. There were people everywhere. Susa was filled with crowds. It was filled with action. It was filled with excitement. And yet Jerusalem was everything but that. Jerusalem was nothing more than a broken down city on the backside of a border territory. And so Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the emperor, now is feeling God's calling upon his life to go to the city of Jerusalem, this broken down city, the rubble around the city speaking and testifying to the fact that it has been defeated years and years ago, that this once great city of the Middle East was now nothing more than a city laying in ruins, and yet this is where, this is where Nehemiah finds himself called to, to the city of Jerusalem. And why is that? It's because even though the city was broken down and nothing more than rubble, God's activity was apparent in the city. God's activity and his working power were there in this city. And his activity gave Nehemiah and it gave the Jews a reason to celebrate. And this morning I want us to talk about this idea of celebration, this idea of what it means to celebrate the activity of God in our lives. See, the walls of the city... As we learn there in chapter 6, verse 15, were rebuilt by Nehemiah and the people in 52 short days. It was a miraculous thing that had happened. And the only explanation for the fact that the walls had been rebuilt, much less built in that short of time, was the fact that God had done this. Verse 16 of chapter 6, it testifies that not only did the Jews believe this, that all the enemies, the people around the area of Jerusalem, looked at what had happened and declared that it was nothing more than the hand of God upon their lives. So God was doing something in and through his people. 
A few days after the walls were completed, as the people gathered to read from his word, we see there in chapter 8, as they gathered to hear the word preached and the word explained to the people, their sins were exposed. It led to them worshiping the Lord. It led to them confessing their sin. It led to them uh, committing themselves afresh and anew to God as we talked about in chapter 10. And so God's people experienced a spiritual renewal. Their hearts had now been revived, and for that reason, there was a great cause for celebration amongst them. And so they celebrate the activity of God. They celebrate God himself here in chapter 12 as they dedicate this wall to his glory. I want us to take our Bibles and pick up reading in chapter 12, beginning verse 27. Nehemiah tells us that, at the, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. Netophathites, that's actually how you say that. Also from Beth, Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah. And Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, and son of Asaph. If you recognize Asaph, he's the psalmist in the book of Psalms who wrote all the psalms, or most of the psalms. Verse 36, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Malale, Gilale, Mei, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the accent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir, those who gave thanks, went to the north. And I followed them with, a half, with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall. And above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Maaseah, Menanam, that guy's name, Micaiah, <laughs> uh, that, that Eli, Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets. Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzai, Jehonan, Malchijah, Elam, and Ez- you guys would mess these names up worse than me, so just come on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> appreciate that encouragement, brother. Uh, verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What's going on here in the text? Nehemiah and the leaders of Judah are dedicating the wall that they had built in just 52 days. And so they 
uh, at the latter part of the sixth month, moving into the seventh month, they have this national holiday, the Feast of Trumpets. They read from the Word of God. It convicted their lives. It brought them to a place of brokenness, a place of repentance. They celebrated the Feast of Booths as they restored an aspect of their worship. Then they moved into um, recommitting themselves afresh and anew to God. And that brings us to where we are here in chapter 12. Now, getting to the place where they're going to celebrate the activity of God, not just in rebuilding the wall. Yes, they're going to celebrate that, but it's everything that the Lord has been doing up to this point. They're going to celebrate the activity of God in a very special way. Now, when we think about the Christian life, the Christian life ought to be marked by worship. We ought to live our lives to worship God in worship of who God is. And last week I mentioned that when we think about worship, we ought to think in the context of worship. In other words, what we worship, we worship because it's of value. It is important to us. It's, it's significant to us. It has worth in our lives. And so the word here describes those acts of the mind. It describes the acts of the heart and of the will, whereby we gratefully acknowledge the worth of our God to us. There could be no other human activity which is so lofty and spiritually determinative as that of adoring God. The greatest thing in your life you can do is to worship the Lord. In fact, the Westminster, Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it very succinctly as saying that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You want to know what your purpose in life is? It's to worship God, to enjoy Him forever. Worship is more than just singing, though. When we think of worship, many times we think of sitting in a service, sitting in a chair, sitting in a pew, and having a choir and some songs on a, on a screen, and we're worshiping because we're singing, but worship's not just singing. Worship is serving. Worship is giving. Worship is preaching. Worship is learning from the Lord. Learn, worship is learning from others. Worship is everything we do in our life. When you go to work tomorrow and you're doing it for the glory of God, that is worship unto the Lord. Everything we do should be done for the glory of God. And so worship involves the total submission of all that we have and all that we are to everything we know of God. We ought to live to worship God. With that being said, there are special times in which the most appropriate thing to do is to celebrate God and to celebrate His goodness. In other words, to hold a festival, to throw a party, to to march in the streets and here's Baptist, something we don't always do, to shout, to get a little loud at times. There ought to be times in our life where our worship leads us to be a little bit more exuberant than other times, where we spend a special moment, a special day, take a special opportunity to celebrate in a very significant, special way God's goodness and God's activity in our lives. That's what's taking place here in Nehemiah chapter 12. Are they worshiping the Lord? Absolutely. They've been worshiping the Lord. But now as they dedicate this wall, this is going to be a special moment for them as they celebrate His goodness, His activity, throwing a festival, throwing a party, breaking into two choirs, marching. If you notice in the text, they break into two choirs. They get up on top of the walls of the city that they've built, walls that that their enemies would say that if a fox ran up on it, it would break down. Now these huge large choirs are up on top of those towers they go in opposite directions and they meet on the other side of the city and then middle of the other side of the city when they meet together they begin to sing as one united choir all to the glory of God as they celebrate his goodness so we find them celebrating God 
in this chapter. From this party, I want to share with you five things, five things that we learn about celebrating God. This morning, this is going to be real practical steps, practical aspects of what our celebration should look like as we celebrate the Lord. Number one, celebrate with joy. We see here from these Jews that we should celebrate the Lord with joy. You see, the secret of acceptable worship is not simply in what we do, but how we do it. God is not pleased by the fact that we come in here and just sing. God is pleased when we come in here and we sing with the right motives, with the right heart, with the right action, with the right words even. So we see here that the worship of these Jews was a radiantly joyous experience. If you look there in verse 43, Nehemiah tells us that they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard everywhere. It was heard there in the city and way out into the wilderness country. There was joy in their hearts. There was joy in the city. As they sing and celebrated, they celebrated with the joy of the Lord in their midst. And our celebration of God, just like theirs, should be filled with the joy of the Lord. And we think about joy, we need to understand, and you probably know this, but joy is very, very different than happiness. Joy and happiness are two different things, and yet they do bleed over in some areas, but you can have joy and not be happy. You see, joy is the ability to to delight and to rest in God despite your circumstances. Happiness is to have delight, but it's always contingent upon circumstances. In other words, you can have joy and have everything else in your life pulled out from underneath you, and you can still have that joy, that rest, that confidence in God, that delight in who God is. There can be a positive attitude in your life, even though you don't have anything. Why? Because you have joy. But if you have only happiness and everything else is ripped out from underneath you, you are a miserable wreck. Because the two, though they bleed over, are much different. See, happiness is carried along the ways of our circumstances, up and down, based upon what's going on in our lives. Joy is not like that. Joy is constant because our joy rests in the Lord, and the Bible tells us He never changes. See, your circumstances will change. Some of you men in here, like me, don't have the dark hair that you once had. Some of you don't even have hair that you once had. Some of you ladies, before I let you off the hook, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to go there. It's dangerous territory. Jan already gave me the look. I already backed off, just not going there, going to be smart, not going there. You're as beautiful today as you were the day you were born, right? Things change. Everything in our life changes. The only thing that's constant in this world, two things that are constant in this world, God and the fact that change will, will come, Right? The only two constant things I can think of in this world is the fact that everything's going to change, but God never does. And so we need to understand that. We need to understand that, that our lives cannot be tied to our circumstances. Our lives are supposed to be tied to the one that they were created to enjoy and to worship and to glorify. And so this opportunity to magnify God was a supremely joyous occasion. Whenever these people came together for worship, their hearts were overflowing with 
true joy. It happened, if we were to go back to the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 3, we would see there that as they laid the foundation for the temple to be rebuilt after the exile, and after it was completed, their hearts were filled with joy. Fast forward a few decades, and now under Nehemiah's leadership, after the people have gathered to hear the word of God in the square, what are they doing in chapter 8, verse 12? They're rejoicing and celebrating the Lord. Then as they participated in the Feast of Booths there in chapter 8, verse 17, the Bible tells us that there was very great joy in their hearts. We think about this. We need to understand that worship should never be a doleful, drab experience. There should never be a dullness to our celebration, a dullness to our worship. We are to come then before the Lord with joyful songs and with praise. There should be an excitement in our singing. There should be an excitement in our celebration. There should be an excitement in our service. This morning as we sing some of these songs that we sing, I was just sitting there thinking, do we really believe the lyrics that we're singing? That everything in my life is owed to you. That everything in my life is contingent upon you. That I'm desperate for you. That I desperately need you. I desperately want you in my life. Psalm 33, 1 tells us to shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the righteous. Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Some of us, we come to worship and we come to celebrate the Lord. You can't even hear our voices as we're singing. Why is that? Because you're concerned about what someone else is thinking about your singing. And maybe you should be concerned because you're terrible at singing. I don't know. I'm terrible at singing. But you know what the Bible tells me here? It doesn't tell me to come in here and sing like a, a choir that's going to be on broad, Broadway in New York City. It just says, come here and make a joyful noise to celebrate the Lord. And who cares about what my neighbor thinks? In fact, because we're all terrible singers, we'll just crank the music up a little louder, drown us all out so we can sing at the top of our lungs. That sounds like a pretty good idea to me. I'm supposed to laugh a little bit more than that. Come on. That was a funny joke in my dry, humorous way. But make a joyful noise to the Lord, the Bible says. What, a, what, what kind of witness do we as a church, and I'm not saying red lane, I'm just saying church in general. When the people of God gather together to celebrate and to worship the Lord, what kind of witness are we giving to the unchurched and the unsaved if they come into our services and see something dull? What are we telling the people who come in and sit with us and sing with us and participate with us? And and, and anything and all that they see in our worship and in our celebration is nothing more than boring, mundane, laborious monotony. What kind of testimony is that? May they never come into our services and see somberness on our faces or hear us singing as if we're at a funeral. One of the things I love about going to a funeral of someone who loved the Lord Jesus and was passionate about Jesus and longed for the, for the eternal life, what I love about those funerals is it's not a somber meeting. It's a celebration because they understand it's not someone who we've lost. It's someone who's heaven's gained. That there is a, an expectation, there's a belief, there's a faith there that this world is not all that there is, but they're going home. We need to sing like that in the church. We need to worship like that in the church. 
And so may people come into our services and set in our worship and may they understand and experience the joy of the Lord in our midst. May they experience an eternal delight in the goodness of God in us and to us despite our circumstances. I mean, the economy of America is growing and it's good right now. I mean, we're hearing all kinds of good reports, but if the bottom falls out tomorrow, if our bank accounts are dripping with nothing tomorrow, will our circumstances play into how we worship? The next day, will our joy in the Lord be dissipated because of circumstances in our life? It should never be that way. The people of God here are celebrating with joy. So they may, may the people who worship with us see that our God is someone to delight in, that our God is someone to rejoice in as we celebrate His goodness. So celebrate with, with joy. Secondly, celebrate with variety. Celebrate with variety. God's creation is one of variety. Have you ever just thought about that? Just looking out at creation and look at all the different things that he's created? I want you to think about these numbers with me. Did you know that there are around 34,000 known species of fish in the world? That's fresh and salt water. 34,000 species that we know of of fish. There are nearly 5,500 different species of mammals around the world. 10,000 species of birds. Then there's all kinds, thousands upon thousands of species of insects and reptiles and amphibians in the world today. If you go out there and you look at creation, you see that our God is a God of variety in what he's created. Variety in what he uh, 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 appreciates and what he desires to see in his creation. And that leads me to ask a question. Why did God create so much diversity and so much variety in this world? Why? Why not just have one mammal? Well, I mean, it would have been a lot easier for Adam in the garden if God would have just put one mammal there and said, name that guy. And one fish and said, name that guy. And one bird, name that one. Instead, Adam was there for a whole day, naming everything, just lickety-split. It's every, I'm assuming every second, the one's filing through, and he's like, oh, that's a, that's a cow, that's a, that's a, a dog, that's a, a, a Largemouth bass, that's a giraffe, and he's just naming everything. Why such complexity? I, I believe one of the reasons could be this. Could it be that because the variety of creation reflects the complexity and diversity of who he is, the variety of who he is? Now, I'm not saying we have multiple gods or many gods or any of those things, but there is, there, there is an inexhaustibleness to God that we will never fully come to the end of. We will spend all of eternity continuing to get to know God and never break the surface. He is immeasurable. And so in his creation, there's variety there because in God, perhaps there's some element of variety. I do know this. God loves variety. And there was nothing stereotyped. There was nothing monotonous about his, this celebration in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that they used a wide range of musical gifts and participants to express their adoration, to express their praise to the Lord. They used all sorts of musical talents that they had. They had choir singers. They might have had solas. They had people playing string instruments, clashing cymbals. Everything at their disposal was used to the glory of God. And so worship is meant. Listen to this. Worship is meant to be a shared experience to which a variety of participants bring their particular gifts. 
we all have different preferences, right? Some of you may like good old southern gospel music. Others, you like more contemporary Christian music. Some others, I like country music. I mean, I like all kinds of different music, and some of you are like me as well. And and so we all have our differences. If you're a country music fan, you may say, you know what? I like the 70s and 80s country music. I want that old-time type of country music. Or maybe you go back to Hank Williams Sr. in the 50s, like, that's country music. And then others are in the 70s with some others, and then you got the 80s and 90s, and then you got this stuff today that's, I I don't know, quasi-country. It's more of rock and roll with a little bit of country flair to it. We all have different preferences in music. Some of you have no talent whatsoever musically. You're kind of like me. You can't sing and clap at the same time. I can't do it. If you see me clapping and singing, I'm going to get one of them off at some point. And so I start focusing on it and I get all mixed up and, and just can't do it. Others of you, you're just wonderfully talented in, in, in different areas of musical ability. But we have preferences and skills. And you know what the beauty of the church is? God brings all of that together for his glory and for our good. So celebrate with variety. On this particular day, many people had traveled to the city in order to sing, to use their gifted voices to enrich the worship. That's what we see in verses 28 and 29 is this group of people gathered together to sing to the Lord. Verse 27, we see them using different instruments. Verses 35 and 41, we see priests blowing trumpets and others are, are, are serving and participating using the instruments that David had prescribed. And this worship celebration, the blowing of trumpets and the crashing of cymbals were meshed with the soft tones of string instruments and choral voices. You see almost this dichotomy in their worship. Loud crashing cymbals, loud noises, and then the soft strumming of a harp or the strumming of a lyre. And all of this, we are to see the beauty of their varied worship to God because He delights in the variety that He's put within us. And so today we are one body made up of many diverse members. Therefore, our worship and our celebration ought to reflect our diversity Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that we're to sing hymns and uh, uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Even in that short verse there, as he instructs the church, he's telling us that in our worship, in our celebration, there ought to be diversity and variety because God loves variety. All of us change the radio station from time to time, don't you? You get sick of the station. You get sick of that kind. You want to move on to something else. I don't know if the Lord ever gets sick, sick of certain things, but he definitely loves variety. And so different types of songs mean there are also different types of instruments and singers involved. Variety is good, and it should be embraced in the church. That's why we strive to incorporate various instruments in our worship set. It's not just one thing. It's not just a piano. It's not just an organ. It's not just a guitar. It's not just a a djembe, or whatever instrument you want to put in there, it's variety. Now, we got to figure something out here when all of our people decide to be gone on the same weekend and we don't have backups for our band and it's just a one-man show in the choir. we got to figure that one out. So if you've got musical talent, here's a wonderful time for you to be the second string in whatever instrument you play and then work into that first chair. And uh, really, we want to create a rotation here in our worship ministry that you are serving on a regular basis, not every week, but you're, you're serving, so it's not always uh, the same person on the guitar, the same person on the drum, same person playing the, the uh, keyboard or, or whatever it may be. We've got rotation going on. Everybody's participating so we can use more and more variety 
in our celebration. Third thing I want you to see this morning, and I'm going much slower than I thought I was, chasing some, some rabbits. Third thing, celebrate with purity. Last week we talked about purity. It was our third point in that, in that message as well. And so this is something we see over and over again in the life of God's people. But here as they celebrate the Lord, they celebrate with a pure heart. I want you to think about this. It is, po- it is impossible to pull the wool over God's eyes. Think about that. It's impossible to pull the wool over God's eyes. What do you mean by that, Pastor? You know what I mean. It's impossible to fool him. Our kids sometimes, sometimes can fool us. You know, they'll come in and they all act like nothing's ever happened, nothing's wrong, and yet they've done something they shouldn't have done. Now, we do that as well. Sometimes we can fool other people, thinking that our lives are better than they are. We do this, a lot of people do this every Sunday. You walk in here to worship, you pull into this campus, you just had a fight all the way here from home with your family. I mean, that's probably 90% of us. You've drove to church, you get out of there, you put a beautiful smile on, everything's hunky-dory in your life. You walk in here, you begin to shake hands with people, man, how are you doing? I'm just wonderful. God's blessing me. You've got mail on Saturday that tells a very different story than that. You've got problems in your family. We've all put on this wonderful face that fools everybody. Let's just kind of take the facade off and, and be real for a second. So we can fool one another, but we cannot for the Lord. He's sovereign. He knows all things. And for some reason, we tend to forget this truth about Him, and we begin to think that our forms of worship overshadow our heart for worship. Think about this. However skilled the instruments and the singers, Scripture here emphasizes a quality which takes priority over musical ability and the eager participation of gifted people. You can have talent and you can have a desire to do it, but the Lord knows the heart behind it all. So you can't fool him. He knows what's going on in your life. The hearts of the worshipers are of greater importance than their voices. And so the Lord, think about this, is not moved by lofty words, by captivating tunes, if he discerns unworthy and unacceptable things in our lives. And so if we seek to bring him a worship offering, a celebration of his goodness, and yet in our hearts, the things of our life are not right. He looks at that and says, your words are lofty. Your singing is perhaps beautiful, but it's nothing more to me than refuse. Nothing more to me than trash. It's unworthy to be in my presence. Nehemiah here, the leaders, the singers, all of them, as they prepare to dedicate this wall and to celebrate the Lord's activity, verse 30 tells us that they purified themselves. Reminds me of... Psalm 24, where the psalmist asked a couple questions. He asked, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then he answers his questions. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. How hypocritical it is to sing and to celebrate God for his activity in our church without first receiving the blessings of the greatest miracle he ever completed for us, forgiveness of our sins. How, how hypocritical it is to come in and celebrate what God wants to do in our life and yet not receive what he's already done for us, forgiveness of our sins. Why would we hold on to that? Why would we, why would we try to fool him and act like everything in our life is okay when everything is not okay? And so our celebration should be marked by purity, purity that comes only through the cleansing of the blood of Christ. There's a fourth thing, celebrate with whole hearts. 
The beauty of this passage is found in the superlatives that Nehemiah uses. It describes the vitality of something that was really well done with every participant determined to offer his or her best and make the occasion one which would always be referred to as a joyous time, a wonderful time. And so the Jews were passionate and enthusiastic as they celebrated the Lord. Verse 27, it tells us that they celebrated with gladness. There was a, just an overwhelming gratitude and gladness in God. We see in verse 31 that these were not just choirs, but Nehemiah tells us that they were great choirs. Not just rudiment, uh, small, uh, inexperienced choirs. These were the best they had to offer. Big, large, gigantic choirs to the glory of God. These choirs rejoice, verse 43 tells us, because God had given them great joy. And so what are we to, what are we to see in these superlatives? We're to see this. There was nothing half-hearted about their worship and celebration. They were all in. Absolutely both feet jumping in with the Lord, celebrating Him. And so this is the overflow of supremely grateful hearts that have personally experienced the lavish generosity, the fact that God had just been generous and poured more on them. They didn't deserve the blessings, but they had received them into their lives. And so church, your worship, it should never be half-hearted. I understand. Hey, I I go through motions too. We're human beings. There are days where we feel like we're much more connected to the Lord than the day before. I get that. There are Sundays when because we're so distracted by the things of our lives that we come in here and we literally go through the motions. We all do that. Uh, There's been times where where I've been preaching. In fact, it was just a few weeks ago. I told our staff on Monday, I was like, I I was bored to death preaching. I wanted to be done because I I don't know what it was, but I was just, just doing it. I'm trying to be faithful to the text, but sometimes I bore myself. That's not very nice of you. I don't know if that's an amen or, or what, but uh, it's not very often, by the way. But I understand that we come to church sometimes and we just go through the motions. Can we be honest with ourselves this morning and just say that's, that's a fact? That our worship is half-hearted at times? You know how we know that our worship is half-hearted? Because there's not more purity in our lives. There's not more passion for Jesus in our lives. There's not more love for other people in our lives. There's little gospel commitment in our lives. That's how we know half-heartedness is running and prevalent in our life. So this morning, before we think that we got it all together and we're uppity-uppity and we're spiritually right where we need to be, most of us are half-hearted and complacent and apathetic in our Christian life. I mean, that's where the American church is. Unfortunately, that's where we are many times here at Red Lane. We're not where we need to be. There needs to be greater purity. There needs to be a wholehearted devotion and passion for the Lord. The people here, as they dedicated this wall, as they celebrated God and his activity, we see them with both feet jumping in, their whole hearts committed to the Lord. They fully embraced the Lord. So church, our worship should never be half-hearted, not because of what these people demonstrate, even though they're a good example Our worship should never be half-hearted because Jesus is never half-hearted. Think back with me. If you go back in time a couple thousand years, Jesus is with his disciples. He left eight of them 
in the edge of the Garden of Gethsemane. He took three further into the garden, and then he went even further. He gets on his knees before the Father. He begins to agonize in prayer, and he's asking his Father, saying, Lord, if there's another way, please take this cup from me. Blood is beginning to break out on his forehead. He's sweating drops of blood as he agonizes over what's awaiting him on Golgotha. There in Gethsemane, he's struggling over what's awaiting him on Golgotha. He went to the cross. He died with a full heart for those who he would redeem. And therefore, this morning, as followers of Jesus, how dare we celebrate and worship Jesus with anything less than our whole heart? So we should worship him because Jesus has served us with a whole heart. And that will lead to the purity. That will lead to an evangelistic zeal. That will lead to a, a, a fellowship within our brothers and sisters in Christ in this church like we've never seen before. We won't major on, uh, on trivial things. We will major on the gospel. We will major on fundamental doctrinal areas. We will celebrate the Lord. There will be zeal and vitality in our lives and in our families and in our church like we've never known before if we will celebrate Him with a whole heart. Lastly, celebrate with unity. Celebrate with unity. Look at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Neto... Ne that word. Netophathites. Netophathites. <clears throat> What's going on here? This was an occasion that united not only the people in Jerusalem, but people from the countryside. Urbanites, country people coming together. Urban and rural populations rubbing shoulders with one another as they celebrated the infinite mercy of God. What do we see here? We see the, the, the worship of God and how it miraculously unifies the people of God. I want you to take, if you will, take a quick look around the room this morning. What do you see in this room? What do you see? You see diversity. You see variety. You say, well, I see a bunch of people kind of look like me. Yeah, you, yeah, we do. Most of us are Caucasian, but most of us have gray hair. I get that. There's a lot of similarities. There's also a lot of variety. You look around this room, you see homemakers and CEOs. You see school teachers and software developers. You see GEDs and doctorates. You see black and white you see some with white collars and blue collars. You see some with no collars. What we have in the church is what every church has, and that's what God desires. You have variety, you have diversity, and yet in that you have unity in Christ. We have people in our church from all walks of life, and yet in that diversity, we are able to unify together in worship of the one true God. You see, the common thing that unites us is not the way we look, it's not the education we have, it's not the money in our bank accounts, it's not the car we drive or the neighborhood we live in. The thing that unifies us in the church is Jesus Christ, because we're unified in the fact that we are dead in our sin and trespasses, so we are one there, one lost people, and yet Jesus, the God of all creation, seeks to redeem us and to make us one people in Christ. The worship and the celebration of God unifies us, and yet in our worship, you know what the devil is always seeking to do? Divide it. Man, he'll get you tore up over stupid stuff. I didn't play the song I like. 
Who cares? We'll play your song next week, maybe. You know, we'll get around there, but who cares? We're not singing to you. We're singing to Jesus. And if the song honors God, I don't care if it's slow or fast, your tempo, not your tempo, your style, your instrument, it doesn't matter. If the lyrics honor the Lord Jesus Christ and the people of God can sing it, then we celebrate to the glory of God. It's not about you. It's about Him. I don't like all those instruments that they have up there. Who cares? Right here they had a bunch of instruments. Sometimes they had one instrument. Sometimes they had no instruments. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is, does it glorify Jesus? And can we bring glory to him and be a great example to others as we unify in worship and celebration of Jesus? Those are things that matter. Man, we got to get off these trivial areas because it's nothing more than an enemy trying to divide and to break up what God has brought together in unity for his glory. Again, variety and diversity in this world. Why are there so many stars in the sky. One of the things I love about living out here is you can see the stars. You look up at a dark night and you see the stars. Why did God put so many stars in the heavens? I mean, why not just like five? Then we could count them and say, all right, that's that number one, that's number two. You look up there and you get lost in all the stars. Why so many? Why all the varieties of flowers? You go to the store, you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, and you're going to buy some flowers. I get lost in the names. I don't even know what they mean because I can't pronounce them because you've already seen my English is terrible, right? I can't even pronounce them. But I say, I like that when it's yellow. I like that when it's red. There's all kinds of varieties. Why? Why not just daisies and roses? Why the vast array of colors and shapes found in the fish and the oceans and the lakes? Some of them living miles and miles below the surface of the water. What's the point in that? You never even see these fish. Why are they down there? Why the giraffe or the hippopotamus? Why skunks? Other than the fact that you, uh, you're driving down the road, you don't even see the skunk and you just smell it. It's in your car. Why skunks? Think about this. Creation is in many respects the perpetual celebration of God's wonder and magnificence and all its variety and all of its strangeness its beauty and its extravagance the created order worships God by exhibiting something of his nature we too as the people of God are meant for the same purpose that we exude that we exemplify that we bear some resemblance of his nature and while worship encompasses all of life there ought to be times in our life in the life of the church that we take side special moments and we celebrate God and his goodness. We may not bring people in from all the villages like they did here, but in our families and around a meal, at a holiday, at a special moment at the church, we should mark out the goodness of God in some sort of festival enjoyment of him. Today, how should we celebrate God? What good things has he done in your life? The Bible would tell us to count our blessings, to think of his goodness in our life. What is it that God's done in your life that's been good? We could be here the rest of the day. We could. You think, I can't even think of something. You're breathing right now. Let's start there. You're at a church that loves the Lord and loves you. Let's start there. You have an opportunity to respond to his word. Let's begin there. God is good to us. God is merciful to us. He's worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship, worthy of our celebration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us. 
Thank you, Lord, that we have something to sing about. That our faith is not a dead faith. It's not an empty faith. It's not a useless faith. It's a living faith. And a living God who is alive and at work in our lives today. And so, God, in response to what these Jews did here as they dedicated the wall to your glory, they celebrated all that you were doing and had been doing in their lives. Lord, we want to respond in in much the same way. So as we move into a time of response, as we sing in just a moment, I pray that we'd be able to to pause and reflect on your goodness to us. God, thank you for, as a church, 173 years of faithfulness. 173 years of your leadership through the ups and downs of this church's history. People being saved, people being called to the mystery, people serving on the foreign mission field because of your calling, your leadership, your blessing, your provision in and through this church. God, you've been good to us. We have much to celebrate. Same could be said of our families, Lord, as we just take a moment and just think about all the things that you've done for us. Lord, we want to say thank you. As we move into this time of response, Lord, help us to be grateful, to be thankful. And may our hearts be open to whatever it is you would speak to us today. God, for some it may, may mean they need to come to Christ. For some they mean, it may mean that they need to, to confess sin like these Jews did in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. Just hearing from the Word of God and allowing it to pierce their hearts. Seeking to be pure before you. God, whatever it is, may we have a heart that is open and receptive to your leadership this morning. Help us to respond in faith and to respond in action this t- today. Lead us, Lord, now as we respond to you, I pray in Jesus' name.